We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. So get your Bibles out. If you brought it, turn it on. If that's your style, follow along. Um, It'll be on the screens as well, but I love when people follow and um, get familiar with the text. And so um, we're actually going to skip verses 13 through 19, um, the appointment of the disciples. It's just a lot to cut. We're going to cover quite a bit of ground here. So um, starting in verse 7, and we're going to finish it out all the way through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he, and he told his disciples, have a boat ready for him, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Uh, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Skip down to verse 20. And then when he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they, well, they're saying, well, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And uh, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. That's why Jesus said this. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. I, I, I want to read a, a really great um, quote. I love this from Susan Scott's uh, book called, from um, the book is Fierce Conversations. Great book. Um, this is what she says. Uh, Things change. The world changes. You and I change business colleagues, life partners, friends, customers. We are all changing all the time. As Lillian Hellman wrote, people change and forget to tell one another. Not only do we neglect to share this with others, uh, but we're skilled at masking it to ourselves. Well, it's no wonder things go sideways 
and relationships disintegrate. There you go. You're like, you can all look at your spouses or your friends and be like, this is what I've been trying to tell you. (laughs) That's so true, right? Like we change and we just forget to tell each other. Um, But I wanna add to what she says. Um, I think also sometimes relationships struggle because maybe, maybe um, it's not so much that we are changing sometimes, but just we never fully understood each other from the get-go. You know what I mean? Uh, My first couple years of marriage uh, wasn't communicating change as much as it was get, uh, both of us were trying to get clear about the misconceptions that we had from each other from day one and how can we navigate these misunderstandings, <laughs> right? Um, you, it's not long into your first year, second year of marriage and you're like, who are you? You were perfect at a certain point. You're not perfect now, you know? Um, there's things here. Who are you? Some misunderstandings like, can be really difficult, you know what I mean? Like some, sometimes we don't understand each other um, and, and it's really debilitating and we get horribly angry, you know? We get, we get, we get horribly, um, we grieve, we, we feel isolated, you know? I mean, one of the things that you can hear when people grieve is like, I, just no one understands me. Like that's a really hard feeling to have. Um, my, uh, my wife is the type to, to tear up sometimes, even when simply asked to explain like what uh, she really wants or desires. Um, that might be strange for some of you. Some of you are like, oh, I understand that. Um, like clearly self-defining yourself sometimes is actually a really greater skill than we realize. Like, like in other words, some of us live our whole lives understanding ourselves uh, through the lens of the roles that we need to play for other people. And then, so if you wanna try to get clear about who you actually are, apart from other people, that, that's, that's actually a really high level of emotional intelligence. And so um, that can happen to us. Clearly, self-defining, declaring is just something that's really hard. When my, but my, when, like when my three-year-old, um, soon to be four is trying to tell me what she wants. And, and, and I don't understand, you know, um, because maybe it just sounds like gibberish or whatever. <laughs> um, she gets really mad and <clears throat> stomps her feet and walks off, you know? That's like the, the really, um, <laughs> there's a lot of gusto and bluster in her when she's misunderstood. My, when my wife confronts me on something and, and I feel misunderstood, I get really defensive and I lay out like this phenomenal argument as to um, how wrong she is and how right I am and that the misunderstanding is wholly on her part and um, she should get her facts straight. And um, I do that until um, the embarrassment sinks in deep enough in me uh, and I come back to like a safe enough place to just simply listen, like to drop my defenses and enter back into like a listening posture, not a, not a listen to defend, not a listen to fix, not a, not a listening to hijack, um, listening to learn uh, is, a, is a re- another really great skill. I, I'm talking about misunderstanding clearly. I'm talking about like, we don't always understand each other or other people. And so the point I'm trying to build here is that the little vignettes that you read in Mark 
look disjointed at first. You're like, what are we, how do you put these all together? Like you, you think of reading the gospel sometimes with like the subtitles and the little sections and stop there. And, and you have like a new little story each time. And, but actually, um, despite the fact that they look disjointed and feel disjointed when you read them, there actually is a common denominator through them if you noticed it. And it is that Jesus is misunderstood at every turn. Maybe a better way to put it would be that um, Jesus is very clearly in all of these little vignettes that you read, he's not meeting people's expectations. And, and that's terribly difficult for all of them. Um, people in this scene, like all the people really, except for one group there at the end, the people are projecting all their individualized needs and fears onto Jesus. And what Jesus is doing, like in an indirect way, essentially, is he's exposing all those projections. That's what he's doing. By, the, by just the sheer nature of his life, it's, it's, coming, it's coming out like, oh, you, these are the expectations you had of me and I'm not meeting those. And that's really hard for them. Now, I don't think Jesus has changed. <laughs> I, like, this isn't like Jesus was one way, you know? I mean, I would imagine that's probably what Mary and the brothers thought. I mean, they're like, Jesus, you've changed and you didn't, t-. like, what is this? But you can imagine for Jesus, he's thinking, I've been this way the whole time. You just have really misunderstood me. I don't think Jesus has changed. I just think people are having to wrestle with who he really is. And it's really incredibly difficult for them. And, I, and this text shows us that facing those misunderstandings and unmet expectations in Jesus is either, and it's always gonna be this way for us, for them and, and for us. When, when Jesus isn't meeting your expectations, it's either gonna be a barrier and a wall for you, or it's gonna be an invitation for you to, to, be, to go deeper into intimacy and trust. And those are the two options that are always before you. And, and you can see in the text, in the New Testament, it's frequent. You can see this in your own life and people around you in the church. People, when they hit that fork, sometimes you, know, you can tell they're really wrestling with that. Now, I'll, I'll try to show you what I mean just by breaking up the whole text that we read into to three small scenes just three scenes. So the first scene, let's just call it the diseased, the diseased group. And Jesus' reputation is, if you read Mark 1 and Mark 2, it's like his fame is building, right? He's been healing people. And so it's really, the people are getting hysterical. I mean, honestly, they, to the point that the text is that they're about, he's going to get crushed. I mean, so you can imagine, you can try to imagine these people with, with, they're sick or they're bringing their sick children or they're, they're lame friends, whatever it is, they're bringing, they're just, and they're just pressing upon him. Like, please, please, you know? And, and Jesus does this weird thing actually, like he heals, but he withdraws a lot too. You know, he would make our mercy team, which I'm a part of, very uncomfortable. There's needy people. Why are you sneaking out the back door? But Jesus does that sometimes. Um, He's just clearly, he wants to heal. He does heal, but he also has bigger things on his mind. I mean, he's heading to the cross. I mean, he heals people. You ever think about the fact that Jesus heals people? Um, you know, he makes them well, but they're still gonna die. You ever think about that? So what Jesus is actually, he's got something bigger on his mind. He's like, I'm gonna go take care of the thing that's gonna keep you dead forever. I'm gonna go get after the bigger 
more crucial issue here. This is the text that says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And now you have the, the, the second scene after this, um, we'll call the ticked off family, right? Um, Jesus obviously lived in his day. It was an honor and shame culture. Family was paramount. And so if you, you, know, you go a little sideways, man, you, you make your family look bad. That's not good. And so all this hype has stirred up his natural family back home. And so they're coming for him. And this is what we read in verse 20. Then he went home after all this and the crowd gathered again. He just seems to always find himself around crowds. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And then it says this, and when his family heard it, they went out to what? Seize him. Get your honey up, you know, right? Get inside. Seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. He's lost it, is what his mom thinks. Mary, that's Mary we're talking about. Mary, the one who had the, the one who'd met with angels, the one who, the, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and yet she's off a little bit here. Some of you are like, I'm never off about Jesus. I can win a doctrinal debate any day of the week. Really? Really? That's interesting. Because we see Mary had way more information than you. And yet she's struggling with what he's up to. But you never, me, we never struggle with what he's up to. Third scene, we'll call the Bible teachers, right? The religious leaders are hysterical in the sense, everybody's hysterical <laughs> in this. And they're, they're hysterical in the sense because he's casting out demons and they're deeply suspicious of Jesus. And when you're suspicious of someone, what do you do? You label them so you don't have to deal with them. That's what we do, right? That's, we love labels because the, the sooner I label you, the sooner I don't have to deal with the complexity and the nuance of who you are as a person. So we label them. And you know, Bible teachers and religious people, they're just notoriously and sadly known for being competitive and territorial. Shocker, I know, right? And so they're bothered by him. And we read this in verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they're, they're coming after him too, right? They're seeking him. And they're saying what? He's possessed by Beelzebul, which essentially just means Lord of the flies. And he, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, which Jesus unpacks the logic. And he's like, that doesn't make any logical sense. So those three scenes, the diseased family, the ticked off, or the diseased people, the crowds, the ticked off, you know, upset family, the Bible teachers, what do, you, what do we see, right? For one, Jesus, for the, for the diseased crowd, Jesus potentially, it's a little bit of conjecture here, but potentially what you have is Jesus is probably nothing more than a cosmic Santa Claus. He's a vending machine of good things. Like just go get it, go get with the thing that you want. Um, that's what the poor, the sick, and the lame are looking at him. And we don't really know if they really wanted to learn anything. They just actually just needed to get well. Drive through, service, get well. Um, for the 
to the family, Jesus was this fanatical lunatic, right? And in their eyes, he's, the way he's behaving is heaping shame on them. I mean, he's alienating himself. And he's, they feel alienated. That's uncomfortable. And the third scene, the local religious leaders, teachers, um, he's a heretic. He's possessed with evil. You ever thought about um, how much Jesus, how often Jesus felt alienated, isolated, misunderstood? Have you ever thought about the fact that on the cross, when, you know, because Mark's telling the story to get to the cross. He's leading you to the cross. And have you ever thought about on the cross, maybe quite possibly, one of the most painful things for Jesus was just feeling misunderstood? You know what I mean? Because if you're misunderstood, it really hurts, particularly if it's somebody that's close to you. You ever thought about that? That he just, like, the whole way through, he, he's saving the world. And people hate him for it. I, I can't imagine what that felt like for him, how, how isolated he often felt. And what I find so fascinating about Jesus is that he moves through that, that misunderstanding with all these different people in these different relationships. And he's like surgically composed. Like he, I mean, this, this guy, Jesus is, he like never argues. Even in this scene, all this misunderstanding that's taking place, all these people projecting all of these things that he is not, that he is not and he's not gonna meet that. And he's not gonna, you know, he's gonna not gonna be victim to the expectations of, of everybody around him, um, but he doesn't argue. He's not interested in winning an argument. He actually tells stories, which probably infuriates them even more. You know, it's like they're coming to him to pick a fight and have an argument, and he, what, what's Jesus' response? It's either a question or let me tell you a story. That's how he responds to these moments. At no point does Mark record him losing it on anyone. I mean, Jesus is just like the beacon of not letting people not letting their anxieties, their needs define him and his purpose. If you remember the, the first week we did in this book, Mark, I talked about how that Mark is clearly showing you that after Jesus' baptism and he goes out into the wilderness, Jesus is defining, like he's, the father has come down and said, you're my son, that's who you are. You will not be defined by all these realities around. You're my son and I love you and I'm pleased with you. And... He, he's, he's centered in on that. He won that test. He won that test out. And so for him, he's very clear about himself. He knows who he is. So have you ever just sat back and been amazed by all that? It's just, it's just quite amazing that he doesn't, he just questions, he tells stories, he never argues. How does he do it? Well, in one sense, I would say this, he's the son of God. And so it's like, yes, he... He's, he's a little ahead of me on that. Um, but in another sense, because sometimes we miss the humanity of Jesus. And really, we're not there. We're just a few chapters in, in Mark. In another sense, what I notice about him, if you really carefully read the story, is he seems to be so grounded and centered in who he is because he's constantly withdrawing into prayer. Constantly. 
He's constantly withdrawing into prayer, into to solitude and silence and being with the Father. So he knows who he is. He rem, he's constantly being reminded of his purpose. He's constantly uh, being reminded and he's, being, he's, he's very deliberate about that the whole way through the story, which is just a little sidebar lesson for all of us. Like as the uncertainties of your life unfold, as, you get, as your life gets more and more hectic, I'm telling you, friends, if I can get you to, if I can convince you of anything, like if you don't have a daily, weekly, monthly rhythm of solitude and silence and prayer, there is no way you'll be clear about who you are. No way. You will be what everybody wants you to be around you. I promise you that because it's nothing but noise. So if you don't build this rhythm into your life, the way Jesus has this rhythm in his life, there's no way you'll be grounded and centered in Christ. Now, you might say, yeah, 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 but I, I actually experienced Jesus is rude here. Anybody willing to admit that? Like raise your, no, no one's, is, would anybody be like, yeah, I, you know, I find him a little rude. He's walking away, escaping from needy people. He's snubbing his family. And he's making really, really harsh statements. Really harsh statements. I would have loved to sit down with each one of you individually if we had the time and, and read this section and just say to you or ask you, which was the most striking statement in the whole story to you? My guess would be, a lot of you would be like, what's going on with blasphemy in the spirit? Like, since when does Jesus not forgive? Like there's something really uncomfortable about that scene. This so like this unforgivable sin. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. You ever notice we forget the whole positive statement at the beginning? <laughs> all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, which is to speak ill of someone, right? In this context of God. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because you know, they're saying he has an unclean spirit. Now remember something, if you go back, the forerunner, John the Baptist, at the very beginning of the story, what did he say? There's one that's coming after me. I'm just baptizing you in the water. There's one coming after me that baptizes you with what? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. So this is the issue, right? And so in a sense, Jesus is defending himself here but he's not even, he's not actually attacking anyone. At no point from, and this is me personally, at no point from what I can tell, does he even condemn anyone? Read it again. He just makes the statement. It's actually more like a warning than it is a condemnation on anybody. He's warning about dangerous territory. I mean, essentially he's saying like, perk up. Listen to me. I've got to tell you something very seriously. When he says truly, truly, or anything like that, it's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, let me tell you something really, really important. I want you to know that everything you do will be forgiven. I can forgive you from everything. If you acknowledge it, I'll wipe it. That's an amazing statement. That's amazing. But he's also saying this. However, if you are utterly convinced, you are utterly convinced that what I want to do is not good for people, but evil, then you are cutting yourself off from the very thing that will heal you. 
Uh, I think it's N.T. Wright that says, look, if you're dying in the wilderness of thirst and you come across the only fresh spring that exists and you are convinced that it's polluted, you're going to die because you're never gonna drink it. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're cutting yourself off from the very thing that would save you and rescue you. I'm not here to do bad. I'm here to do good. Through the story form, Jesus actually, I think, explains it's parable, so it's, you know, it's not like always abundantly clear off, you know, first take for people. He explains what his desires are and what he's here to do. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed, right, he may plunder his house. Now, what is he saying? In the context, he's talking about Satan and evil, right? Like he's talking about like a haunted house where Satan rules it's earth. <laughs> and he's like, he's strong. He's a strong man. He's got everybody in his grips. And there's nothing you can do about it unless somebody stronger than this guy can come in and tie him up and steal his goods. That's what he's saying. Which is, that's, that's the, a fascinating way of putting it, I think. And so, essentially, Jesus is saying what? He's saying, I'm, I'm the stronger man. Now, now ch here, check this out. Think about the stories that you, you just read. What is he saying then? Because the, the language is very precise. He says, unless he first binds the strong man. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the stronger man that won't be bound. In other words, I won't be bound by the diseased crowds. I won't be bound by my family's expectations. I won't be bound by the religious Bible teachers. I won't be bound by anyone. I'm here to do the binding and I'm here to plunder people by grace. That's what I think he's getting at in the story. And so he's, Jesus is going about that and it doesn't make sense to everyone because everybody's got these kind of preconceived expectations, right? He, he's winning people for the kingdom of God, but not everybody around and watching it and being, you know, watching him closely, listening to him. It doesn't make sense to them all the time. So what's the lesson then for you, for me? Like what, what's Mark getting at when you put, when you put it all together? Well, I, I think here's what I think God wants for us and to understand when we look at Jesus. Anyone and everyone who comes to him, anybody, I don't care who you are, any of us that ever come to Jesus, at some point, um, we will be disturbed and disrupted by him. It, that is inevitable. Like, he, if you actually are truly listening and looking at him as he presents himself, like if you actually read the text for yourself at some point and you go to it again, like I said earlier, with a listening posture, don't, don't open the Bible to hijack what it's saying. Don't open the Bible to confirm your bias. Go to the Bible, open it, look at, start reading the gospels and say, I just, how can I look at it and have a listening posture. What about what's there that I don't necessarily like? Why don't I like it? Learn to do that. Because what you'll find is you'll, you won't have to get very far. 
And you'll be like, that's a little disturbing. That's a little uncomfortable for me. Because Jesus will not be co-opted or controlled for our own personal or preferred agenda and projects, whatever those things are. And, 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 and we will all be guilty of this. I'm not, this is incredibly difficult work I'm talking about. I, so I wanna make sure that I, hopefully I, I, have, I have some level of a tone of like compassion for us because this is really hard, because this is something we all do. Again, if Mary did it, I, like you're, you're gonna do it. You're gonna like not understand him at some point. You're gonna be like, well, my daddy said when I was growing up, well, maybe your daddy was wrong. You know, or my, that preacher, you know, I grew up around said you, that maybe he was wrong. I'm right. <laughs> but I, I, I'm saying like, let's go to him and understand like, are we willing to ask questions, wrestle with the things that we recognize and see? If we actually wanna to come to Jesus with sincerity, at some point he's gonna invite you, he's gonna invite me to, to see how you're trying to label him or you're trying to control him Anybody got control issues? Don't worry, you don't need to tell me. I know it's all of us, because I remember the pandemic. All of our mini babbles was being destroyed, right? By Babel, you know, Genesis story, like we were all building things of self-reliance and look at how great we are. And then the, the little, uh, uh, not, I don't wanna mean a little, but a disease comes through and everybody's like, we have no control. And everybody freaked out. So we all have control issues. So here's the thing, do we think we just shelf control issues when we go to Jesus? Come on. Come on. And so at some point he's gonna, he's going to, by love, expose us to like, oh, I think I have some control issues. I have, I, I'm trying to seize him for my own cultural, political, selfish life project. You know, what's the project to which you live for? Right now, a lot of you are like, bangles. <laughs> I mean, but I'm not making fun of that. I, I love the bangles. I'm just saying like, we all have, life projects that we're like, this is the thing in which I live for. Well, what is exposing it? You know, how are you getting in contact with that? Jesus wants you to get in contact with that. Jesus will always leave you disillusioned if that's what you're after. Like if you're trying to smuggle, co-opt Jesus into your own little life project, you will end up disillusioned at some point. You will, like it's inevitable because Jesus won't be co-opted. He won't be used for your own, like he's way too big, way, way beyond us in that sense. And so I think in these series of scenes, Jesus is showing us that if we truly wanna understand him and, and what he wants, then we need to constantly interrogate our assumptions, like constantly. Not in an anxious sense, not like, I don't wanna send everybody home going, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Well, I, maybe that some of you, would, that would be good for you, honestly. I, I just think it's important for us to interrogate our assumptions and our expectations of Jesus at all times, as well as have the courage to confront the visions and agendas and life projects that we're actually pursuing. Because Jesus is the king of disrupting our notions of who are the true insiders and like who are the true outsiders. I mean, when you recognize in that story, it's like, it's fascinating to recognize that. 
that it's like, whoa, the people that think that they're inside actually find themselves on the outside. And the people that find, think that they would always be on the outside are now on the inside. That's just what Jesus does. And he does it in the church all the time. I mean, look at the last scene, 31. And his mother and his brothers come. So they, they finally get him. They finally get to the place where he's at. I've been traveling from Nazareth, walking a while and standing outside, outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. It's like, Jesus, mom's here, your mom's here. And he answered them in typical Jesus fashion with a question. Who are, who are my mother's? Who's my mother? Who's my, who are my brothers and sisters? And looking around at those who sat around him, like at his feet, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In a different way, I love how Luke, I think it's Luke 8, it says it's those who hear and then do the will of God. And so in one sense, You've probably maybe heard this, read this scene before and you think about the church and rightly so. Jesus teaching us about this new community, this new humanity, this new spiritual families building. And so like, man, if, if in one sense you're just here and you're like, man, I've never had a place of people that I felt like I belonged to. In one sense, like this is it. Like if you want Jesus as Lord, you have a place and a people to belong to. I'm not saying you're gonna like all of them, but who likes everybody in their family? And so... You, you do, like Jesus gives you, a, and, and, and the, who he lets in to be a part of his family is wide open, man. It's whoever, doesn't matter class, race, socioeconomic status, education level, whether you can pass an exam, there's no qualifiers. It's whoever, whoever wants to be in my family, Jesus says. But in another sense, I think Jesus is teaching us that this new community, this family, this group of disciples are the ones that are simply sitting around him, listening and learning to live in a new way. In other words, I'll say it like this. It, Jesus's family are the people. Um, they're, they're, they're around him, not to confirm what they already know. They're, they're there to learn what they don't. You see the difference? These are people that are like, I don't think I understand how to live. I think he knows and I wanna sit and listen to him. Everybody else seems to be operating with complete certitude on the outside. You see that? Oh, I've got, I know what he is, he's evil. I know what he is, he's possessed. I know what he is, he's a dispensary of healings. The only people that are like not really clear about who he is, but they're deeply interested and curious are the ones that he's saying, they're right here, they're around me and they're my family. And so what this looks like, I think I'll unpack more next week. <laughs> so my way of saying, come back. Um, but for today I, would, today, I would just say this. I, I, I would invite you to just consider how discipleship is absolutely about surrender. Discipleship to Jesus is about submission. It's about seeing that you've been plundered by grace. It's about learning to let him define your agenda. And, I, and I, let me repeat that. It's about learning 
to let him define my agenda and my reality, which takes time. If it took time for Mary and the brothers, like it, it will take time for us to figure out what it, how does my more and more and more of my agenda and my reality being shaped by the will of God. And maybe you've heard that before, like you, you've, you're familiar with that language of like the, the, being a Christian, being a disciple is learning to submit, to surrender. What's it look like in practice? Well, just a couple of things. For one, I would just say it starts with proximity, just plainly proximity. Notice Mark's language. The disciples were sitting around him and his natural family was standing outside. That's a literary device I think Mark is using to say disciples are always found close up to Jesus, as close as they can get. They're, they're on the inside um, living daily with Jesus. And so when you kind of extrapolate that, put that into your own life, you think about this, how do you have proximity to Jesus? Well, you prayer, reading scripture, regular worship, regular study, regular conversations about him. Like as much as you can fill into your life with that, that's proximity, right? That's the idea of like drawing near to him. Confession, these kinds of things. But here's the thing. This is, and I think that this is so key. Proximity alone won't do it. It's also the practice of when you're getting, getting close to Jesus, I, and I kind of already got this, but assume that you're making assumptions. Assume that about yourself. And like, I'm not attacking, we all are doing it at all times. Like we slip into this. And so in other words, keep your guard up on how, you've, how you're losing your curiosity. Some of you have felt like an insider to Jesus in the church for so long, for so long, the familiarity of all of it has, has completely wiped out any sense of curiosity in you. you, are, you it's been years since you've been disturbed by Jesus. Years. It's been years since you've been disrupted. I mean, you get disrupted by, by politicians. You get disrupted by sports. You get disrupted at home. You get disrupted at work. Jesus, steady Eddie, he don't bother me none. Because you're not asking any questions. You're not looking at him as he actually presents himself. So what I find so instructive in this story is that those that should be the most knowledgeable about Jesus, in other words, the, the Bible scholars and his mother and brothers who have literally been with him <laughs> his whole life, they're the ones not actually, they're the only ones not actually listening to him. <laughs> it's the complete outsiders and strangers to him that are the ones that are actually listening to him. What's their issue? Well, they just had lack of curiosity, lack of humility. They were overcome by their own sense of shame and alienation that Jesus will inevitably bring when you get close to him, right? They had a certainty about what is good for themselves and for the kingdom of like me. I am so certain about exactly what I need and how to build the kingdom of God. If Jesus would just consult me, I would, I would, I would whiteboard it for him, right? So. We, that's in some way, this is all happening for them. Absolute certainty about what you need and what is best for you in your development is usually a sign that you're leaning out of a listening posture towards Jesus and you are, and instead you've slid back into a habit of trying to co-op Jesus. I just need this, I just need that. If I can get this and I can get that, I can start developing and grow and I can get to where I wanna be. 
What makes you so certain you understand that? And so I think it's better to look at Jesus's life in words and say, how does, when we read it and just say, hey, how does this, what is he doing? Not just saying, but even doing, how is he living his life? And what about it compares and contrasts with the way I'm living my life? Do I withdraw and pray? He seems to withdraw and pray all the time. Do I do that? Well, I don't do that at all. Maybe I should start incorporating that into my life. You know, what is he doing? How does it line up with you? And if you're like, well, that, I'm gonna find all sorts of things that make me uncomfortable. Great, that's the point. Why is it making you uncomfortable? So I think that's the better. It's why, it's why I try when I speak with people. And I, I, you know, if you're like, you just asked me that the other day. And so forgive me, but I try, I try to avoid when I'm talking to people, Christians, I try to avoid questions like, how is your faith lately? I, 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 I just really hate that question, to be honest with you, because it's like, how are we scaling it? You know, because for me, I'm like, if the little bit of faith to me, there's endless possibilities. I just don't like the question. Because, I mean, and besides, it's like, I mean, everybody's gonna go around and tell each other, wonderful, well, I'm, I'm a faith giant. So I, I, what I try to ask people instead is something like this. Because I, I, the spirit of it, the heart of it is good. Like we want to engage with people in their spiritual life. I think it's this. What's interesting or difficult about Jesus for you lately? Because you know why that, of that question? Because it puts us back at the feet of Jesus listening. Just try it on this week. How have we gotten him wrong, you know? What if we started to go to our friends and our family members and say, hey, how have you, getting, how have you got Jesus wrong lately? You, I mean, what you'll notice is some people immediately be like, oh, I don't have him wrong. What you can do right there is just be like, oh, I get him wrong all the time. He's slippery, you know, I'm trying to figure him out. I've been thinking a lot about the experience of this illusionment that seems to hunt down legitimate Christians at some point. And you've seen it, I'm sure you've maybe felt it, experienced it. I, I, I've just seen the most faithful Christians get rattled. They, they fall into doubt, they fall into disorienting questions, like, wait, I, I don't know if I fully understand who Jesus is or what he's up to and what this gospel means for me and like how to live it out. Like it, and then it, it, it can kind of progress and progress and it gets deeper. And that's just like a really scary place to be in when you feel disillusioned with Jesus. And when, when, when we say that, what, what, what do we mean? We mean when we're starting to look at Jesus and we go, I, he doesn't seem good to me. I'm not, I'm not saying he's not good. I'm saying you, deep down, you, you get to places where you feel like he's not good. And that's a scary place, I think, for Christians naturally. No one likes having established ideas disturbed about anything let alone Jesus. No one likes having their life dreams crumble before their eyes. That's disturbing. But I'm also learning that disillusionment, as scary as it can be, it can be a gift. It can bring incredible humility, uh, not only towards God, but towards each other and the, the neighbors around us, the Christians around us. That's a wonderful place to begin to have wonderful conversations that really lead to incredible amounts of learning about how and who God is and what is he, what is he up to in our lives. 
it can cause you to fall naturally back into realizing that this has to be about grace. It cannot be about my merits and my work. This has to be about grace because right now, I mean, everything I thought I had figured out, I'm, I'm questioning it again. So if this thing's not about God's mercy and grace towards me, then I am doomed. That's a really good place to fall back into. And this grace and humility thing gets you curious then about your own agendas and, and, and what you're living for and what this life of Christianity is all about. And so you can start to feel free to ask really difficult questions. Questions like this. Am I claiming to be a Christian to get the spouse or the family that I've always envisioned for myself? Am I coming to God to get the career that I always wanted? Am I in this relationship with Jesus so I get the friends that I always wanted? Am I, am I in here? Am I in the church? Am I practicing these things to get the earthly comfort and security that I always thought I'd have? None of these things are bad, by the way. Like, I hope you get, make progress in them. I hope the family comes, the, if that's what you want, I, the, the money or the career, the reputation, the security, the health. I have, but here's the thing. I, it, however, and, and Jesus, I think, loves to give these sorts of things to his, his, his children, but we, are we trying to co-op Jesus? In other words, are we simply trying to use Jesus as a means to those ends? Or is basking in God's presence, just basking in his love and learning how to change for the sake of my neighbor, the end in itself. Even if it means a, a horrible death to the vision of life that you've had. It's really tough. Like I said, none of this is easy. And so as we come to communion this morning, as we, as we step up here in a little bit, communion, the Lord's Supper, is the practice of grounding yourself back into the presence of God. That's what we're doing. We're, the, he, he took bread, you know, that last night he was with his, his disciples before he was taken and then later crucified. And he wanted us to have this and remember this. And he took that bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And so it's, we do it the way he told us to do it because he, we want to remember. And we want to remember what? That I can't use Jesus. I'm not allowed to use Jesus. He's not using me. And you're like, yeah, no, he's not. He's calling you. He's summoning you to a new life. I can't use Jesus, and why would I want to? Why would I want to use someone who has given up everything for me? And that's what communion is. Like when you come up and you take part and you take a piece of the, the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice, you're, re, you're, you're trying to remind yourself of that. I'm not here to use Jesus. I'm here to sit at the feet of him and worship him and thank him. Proclaim his death until he returns. That's what we do when we take part in communion. And some of you, I don't know where you're at this morning. I just wanna say this. Some of you have never felt welcome at the feet of Jesus, like your whole life. And maybe you, you know intellectually that you're allowed to go there and be welcomed at the feet of Jesus. So, you, you, so in some ways you stay open 
and your back of your mind to the possibility of it. Um, but for some reason that you've got it in your head that people like yourself, your, the failures that you have, your quirks and your lack of discipline don't equal up to the image of disciple that you have for yourself. You've got an operating narrative inside of your head that you're like, that's for those people, they're the insiders. It's not for me because of who I am and who I've been. And my, I would just say, if that's the place that you're in, I would just say my hope is that, that, that the story that we read gives you pause. That it is not Jesus telling you those things. It's some other voice in your head telling you that it's not the voice of Jesus. That Jesus is in the business of plundering people by grace. He's robbing evil people back over to good. That's his business. That's his primary business, stealing things and people from Satan. And so therefore that means he didn't come down from heaven to earth to select like job interview, all the know-it-alls who think that they're doing it super great. He came down and he's stealing people who are admitting that they're completely failing. That's what he's doing. So if that is you at any, you know, at any stage of the spiritual journey, you are invited to come forward, take part. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks this morning. And may we be reminded of these things that we have to test our assumptions, that we have to come to you and realize that um, I, I, I still struggle to control your plans. I, I, wanna, I wanna believe in a, in a way and I wanna live in a way that I'm living for your kingdom. But I, I honestly, Father, there so many of us still struggle trying to just build our own little kingdom and vision that we have for ourselves and help us to interrogate that by your spirit. May we trust in you more this morning. Lay down at your feet whatever is um, clinging to us in such a way that it's a barrier. May us receive the invitation to come to you, ask the hard questions, receive your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son. It's in his name. It's for Jesus' sake that we pray, we sing, and that we take part in this. Amen.